everyone, welcome to the workshop where we deconstruct the world we live in because it's time we start scrutinizing common sense. My name is Valeria. And my name is Taylor. And we are a pair of International Comparative Studies College graduates who like to have candid conversations about important and intellectual shit. We thought we might as well do something with our hypercritical major. <laughs> Literally. And for this week's episode of The Workshop, Vale and I will discuss the ways in which we theorize indigeneity in America and what it reveals about, one, how we construct knowledge, and two, its impact on the people we theorize. We will engage with several contemporary and historical intellectuals who illumine how these ways of knowing are deeply connected to and influenced by colonialism. Before we begin, though, we would like to offer a land acknowledgement. We humbly and respectfully acknowledge that we meet on the ancestral territories of the Haliwasaponi, Tuscarora, Siouan, and Catawba peoples. We recognize Duke University's historic and ongoing participation with settler colonialism, including Trinity College profiting from the Cherokee Indian Industrial School and Duke Tobacco Companies dispossessing native people's land and appropriating and profiting from their imagery. I re we recognize and honor the eight nations that currently reside in North Carolina. These include the Kohari, Lumbee, Meherin, Okanichi Saponi, Haliwa Saponi, Wakama, Suan, Saponi, and the Eastern Band of Cherokee. The construction of knowledge is often known as epistemology. A big word, I know. For listeners at home who don't know what it means, because I didn't, the Britannica defines epistemology as the philosophical study of the nature, origin, and limits of human knowledge. We acknowledge that constructions of knowledge in history have been dominated by the West, which we hope to unlearn together in this podcast. I know personally, I have always been curious about how we think about thinking, which leads me to wonder for this week's podcast more specifically about how the US, maybe even the world, has come to understand indigenous communities. If you have also asked yourself the same questions, we encourage you to continue listening. So Vale, tell me about where the origins of your knowledge come from. Honestly, it all depends on what you would consider knowledge, Tay. But definitely, most of what I would deem knowledge was mainly shaped by my academic upbringing, how to interact with the world, naming these interactions, describing other people, categorizing my surroundings, etc. I think growing up in Costa Rica, despite the physical and geographical distance, it's honestly shocking how Western the curriculum still is. As a Chinese woman, I learned more about the US and Europe than I did about the entire Asian continent. I even learned about Christopher Columbus ships more than I learned about the local Costa Rican breweries and Chorotegas, two very important indigenous communities back home. Wow, it isn't surprising that even in another country, you found yourself learning more about the West than your actual culture. I think your experience really speaks to the global impact of the West on not only constructing but dispersing knowledge about histories, people, and more. In history, we know that colonizers did this by forcefully imposing religious values, re-educating indigenous people so that they lost their languages, their cultures, and sense of identity, and even through the way that our capitalist system coerces populations to engage in practices that remove them from their traditions. The negative impact of native casinos on indigenous traditions comes to mind. 
I think, though, the education system is one of the main modern tools for dispersing knowledge that's constructed by the West, as it only teaches students from the point of view of the winners of society and history, aka the colonizers. Coming from the U.S. education system, students are rarely taught about the stories of non-colonizers. And if they are, many parents protest that their child's education is not deemed American enough, which speaks volumes, doesn't it? Yes. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, a bill was passed that requires all schools to teach Native American history in North Dakota. At first I thought, this is great, and it is. But now I think, who's teaching this history? If the majority of teachers are not equipped with such sort of knowledge, will they teach the history respectfully? Whose text will be read? The ones coming from a white settler perspective, or are we going to learn from native scholars? And you can see how it starts to reflect on our daily interactions, or on how these power hierarchies become deeply imbued in daily life under the mantle of common sense or knowledge, and we're often not aware of them, which I think is really, really scary. You know, those are great questions to ask if, I'd assume white people, would be teaching that subject without having any experience in doing so, and may possibly end up erasing Native American cultures instead. All of this actually reminds me of Patrick Wolfe's article on settler colonialism, a distinctive type of colonialism that aims to do just that, erase minorities so that they are replaced by the colonizers and their ideologies. Wolfe is an Australian anthropologist and ethnographer whose work sparked a huge surge in studies of settler colonial societies. Wolf used theories of colonialism and indigenous resistance to generate new and different ways of viewing Australia's history, for example. In this specific article, he discussed the concept of settler colonialism as not an event, but a structure. This differentiation is important because legacies of colonialism are not simply events, but the foundation of a structure that would enable groups of people to maintain power. This is really interesting, and it makes sense, but could you give us an example? Of course. So for example, many people consider slavery to be an event because it quote-unquote ended, without thinking of its present-day implications on Black people. To name a few manifestations of those implications, think of the disproportionate amount of Black men in prison from the prison industrial complex, or the recent protests for Black Lives Matter in response to the systemic murder of Black people at the hands of the police. Racism actively plays a role in the way that people are not only categorized, but targeted and treated. Settler colonialism continues to exist. It just changes with regimes, and it is foundational to our modern society. I mean, what do you think? I agree. Now that you say, like, even though we're not Native American, as black and Asian women, we still suffer a lot from the repercussions of settler colonialism. The white West has had the upper hand in writing history and erasing the narratives of those it does not want to include, many like you and me. Personally, I remember reading Edward Said's Orientalism. In his book, Said sheds light on hidden structural hegemonies of power and knowledge that have been in charge of creating a discourse that constructs, quote unquote, the Orient, as other to Western white culture. Those who are subjected to Orientalism are Eastern societies encompassing places in Asia, Middle East, and North Africa. More specifically, he draws on European culture to illuminate 
how white culture more specifically was able to manage and even reproduce this othering and perpetual construction of the foreigner through academia, popular culture, art, history, which is still prominent today. The Orient, he poses, is a European invention with fatal repercussions to the livelihoods of those who appear to fall into this category. And that continues to bleed into the discourses and structures that exist nowadays. And as you just mentioned, the academic system is extremely influenced by Western knowledge. Mapping this into our topic, I remember a few days ago I read Vine Deloria's text on Custer Died for Your Sins, and his tone and writing style were so brutally honest that every line in felt like I was uncovering a new truth. As a standing rock Sioux scholar, he was writing from a place that criticized the standard anthropologists and the self-righteousness they carry when they go to indigenous reservations to, quote, observe, research, verify. The projections and fetishizations become a ritual to publish for academia. There is no genuine interest or openness to learn. Rather, these excursions are treated as summer camping experiments, extractive for the purpose of something like research and progress. The voices of indigenous people are erased and muted. So much of our knowledge comes from extremely biased and imperialist mindsets. As much as we think of knowledge as this abstract thing, in reality, colonial efforts always, and I mean always, land on the body. Wow, you really went off there, Valet. But I do think you're onto something. Can you tell us a little bit more about how specifically colonialism, as it informs our ways of knowing, maps onto bodies? Yeah, Tay, this is something that I'm really passionate about. So thank you for listening. Um, but, well, to be honest, I feel like, like you mentioned before, race is a big one, and you really landed there. Wolf, in that same article, I think we read the same article, but he talks about the way that settler colonialism begets race and how race is not used to acknowledge difference, but to target groups. In other words, bodies are now racialized in this system in an effort to eradicate them and take their territory and agency. We see this today in indigenous communities. Distinct native cultures are grouped together as a race called, quote unquote, Indians, a move that allows the U.S. more specifically to deal with them not as political entities, but as a group of people available for assimilation into the parameters of the state's settler citizenship. These racial systems are created to exclude whereas indigenous kinship systems are created to include. Right, because colonizers couldn't care less about acknowledging, let alone celebrating the ethnic or cultural differences within these groups. Colonizers often regulate bodies to this non-existent category of race, because although race in itself is non-existent, it becomes important since it has an actual impact on people their identity, and their perceived race. In the process, we witness the homogenization of different racial groups. Like, for example, enslaved Africans from various tribes of the West Africa were conflated into the racial category of black, the Lakota of the So people, or the Crow tribe of what we now know today as Montana, were also conflated into this homogenizing racial category of Native American. So you see, Settler terminologies now serve as the main vehicle for speaking about indigenous identity. It is important to emphasize the modes of self-determination and kinship, though, that indigenous communities continue to fight for and uphold, even when forced within the structure of settler colonialism. Honestly, 
It's ironic and sad how we are taught words like epistemology, but not the language to recognize people's distinct cultural and social groups. When Native people have literally always advocated for less homogenizing perceptions of the self and belonging. It's almost like it's intentional. Well, that is the purpose of this podcast, to be honest. We are here to question not only what we are taught to consider as natural, but the words we choose to understand these kinds of questions. You kind of have to do mental gymnastics to get it or understand it, but it is really important work that we should all do. Trigger warning, we are about to discuss murder. We want to take a break to share a recent documentary by Aaron Williams called Silent No More with White Bison. Aaron Williams is a white Duke University alumna. She completed this documentary in her last year of Duke as a project. And though difficult to watch, this documentary demonstrates the real life lethal implications of the topics that Valeria and I are talking about today. It is difficult to watch, and I also second that it is necessary to inform listeners about the impact that erasure and structural genocide ultimately has on indigenous people in the United States. Erin Williams created this film with the help of White Bison, an American Indian Alaska Native nonprofit charitable organization founded by Don Coyhis from the Mohican tribe. The organization's mission is to create and sustain a grassroots wobriety movement Wellbriety comes from the combination of wellness and sobriety. This organization provides culturally based healing to the next seven generations of indigenous people. The documentary specifically follows the story of murdered and missing indigenous Native American women, featuring interviews from the families of these women as well. In these stories, viewers learn law enforcement's neglect of these cases reflect the discrimination that Native Americans face as many officers resort to victim-blaming stereotypes to justify what happens to the victims. This includes spreading rumors about the victims being involved in some sort of illicit activity, such as drug abuse. Indigenous organizations dedicated to the documentation of missing and murdered Indigenous women have also led and called for the resources to help prevent the murders and disappearances of women and girls. And many assert that under-reporting by power-wielding entities, such as the federal and state government or local law enforcement, is actually due to poor record-keeping, racial misclassification, and inauspicious relationships between Native Americans and both journalists and law enforcement. These stories need to be covered more by the media. We all need to care about this issue because if we don't, more women and girls will die. If you're interested in watching this film, please visit our site for access to a free link. We also encourage you to visit whitebison.org to learn more about the organization and the ways in which you can get involved and support. I kind of want to go back to the point you made about the homogenization of the diverse African and indigenous groups residing in the US or even in America. Tay. Sure. What were you thinking? Like, who do you think is mainly responsible for this homogenization? Like, I know we talked about structures like academia, capitalism, but who creates and upholds them? Who are the modern colonizers? Hmm, these are some good questions. You know, for one, 
I think all white people are responsible. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> really, Tay? Okay, okay. For real, for real, I say that in jest, but it is partly true when we think of the history and legacy of colonialism. And I want to bring in Jessica Catalina's From Lot to Slots, Money and the Politics of Indigeneity into this conversation. Governing entities in the U.S., occupied by majority white elites, abide by the triangular complex that she names money, property, government. She argues that the reason why indigeneity is ignored in theories of money, property, and government is because these concepts never intended to include them in the first place. If anything, they were made just to legalize the perpetual exclusion of indigenous communities. I think I read the same article. I found really interesting how this complex is in direct correlation to settler colonial logics that continue to plague minorities today. I think there is this misconception of minorities, and specifically indigenous populations, that describes them as villains of civilization, when in reality it's been a naturalist apartheid. It forces the grouping of people into binaries, the white and the other, the settler and the native, the savage and the civilized, the good and the evil. Catalino makes that these economic, conceptual, and social exclusions were co-produced and reproduced by juridical and political ones, like the ones you just mentioned. This exclusion of indigeneity in the money, property, and government narrative is not only about segregation, it's about complete isolation and erasure of agency, of othering in every physical, structural, and emotional sense by white elites. Mm. And going back to the homogenization of tribes, although each tribe has suffered from distinct types of oppressions, I think what binds them together is the structural segregation of their collective rights and voices, their forceful imposition into the self-constituting other. Even though they were very much alive during the inception of money, property, and government, their place in the settler narrative has always been as those who lacked an inkling of those notions in the first place. Yet I find it inspiring. Actually, empowering is a better word. Indigenous people's resilience and resistance when surviving and challenging the structures and labels forcibly imposed upon them by white settlers. Their adaptability as communities who embrace tradition but are so wise to understanding the changes of the world and self-determining the path they want to engage in. They are land and water protectors, policymakers, and oral communicators. Although they have been the victims of colonization, they do not abide by victimization in this narrative. They're striving for cultural revitalization while also honoring their ancestors, culture, and land. Look at the Secretary Deb Holland. She's a member of the Pueblo of Laguna and a 35th generation New Mexican. She made history when she became the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary and now has a political power to voice decision-making regarding lands its trust for Native communities. This is great. So, how do we help? How do we apply this? I don't want to just be a stagnant in thinking. How can we be active and help and listen to these communities? So first, more broadly, we cannot take for granted what we accept as common sense. We have to start questioning the things we are taught to consider as natural or instinctual or having always been. 
that resonates with me a lot. I think I also learned when I think about indigenous people more specifically to refuse to homogenize them. When we can, we should name them and acknowledge that distinct tribes exist not only in North America, but around the world. From the Navajo to the Quechua's, their story lives on in this world. Right. That's actually really beautifully put. And to that point of acknowledgement, we should also acknowledge that indigenous communities are very much so alive in the present. Just because the media or academics do not talk about them or do not prioritize them does not mean they do not exist or that they exist in the past. These perceptions allow for the perpetual oppression of Native Americans by suggesting that there is nothing to be done, which is obviously not true. And not only should their resilience be recognized, but their expertise scholarship, narratives too. For one of my classes, we read David Copenau's The Falling Sky. He's a Yanomami shaman in Brazil, and his book sheds light on his experience not only between the spiritual world and the Yanomami community, but between his home and Sao Paulo, one of the most industrialized and populated cities in Brazil. He remains one of my favorite writers and has taught me so much not only about their own culture and indigenous um, thinking, but to embrace another perspective in which to live life. These indigenous scholars have voices, and as non-natives, we should stop pretending we know better than them and instead help uplift their voices. Exactly. And we have only begun to scratch the surface in terms of doing the work to be proactive and in supporting our Native American brothers and sisters in their plights, their stories of resilience, and their ultimate fight for liberation from this stupid U.S. regime. Amen. <laughs> to be decolonizing is to be in action, to be a verb, not a metaphor. As Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang mentioned, we want to separate from the superficially adopted notions of critical methodologies that must be eradicated to uplift a different perspective to human and civil rights. We need one based on new notions of justice, an unsettling one for sure, rather than a complementary one. Decolonization is not a thought or a theory. It is an active process. It is to get out there and do. You know, like Khmer and Sweetgrass reminds us that before doing, this work begins with listening. But to listen, you must first open yourself up to the voices of people who may not look like you and welcome all the discomfort that comes with it. Today, we challenge you to start listening to those voices around you, because I'd bet if you took a closer look, you'll find them. Thank you for joining Valet and I on this week's episode of The Workshop, and we hope to have you again next week. Bye!